0: This is the ninth and last sermon in a series called Two Minority Reports from the Hebrew Bible about the slim books of Ruth and Jonah, and I'm going to be reading from Jonah 3 and chapter 4. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's walk, and he cried out, Forty days more, and Nineveh will be no more. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast, and everyone from greatest to smallest put on sackcloth. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed God's mind about the calamity that God was going to bring about them, and God did not do it. But this was very displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said would happen when I was still in my own country? This is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning, for I knew you were gracious and merciful and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from punishment. And now, Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Jonah, is it good for you to be angry? Should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know their left hand from their right, and also many animals? Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. So God wants the Hebrew prophet Jonah to preach hope and forgiveness to Nineveh, Israel's archenemy, and the sin city of the ancient Near East. But Jonah does not want to preach hope and forgiveness to his bitterest foe, so he flees in the opposite direction. After some gentle persuasions by God, however, Jonah eventually and finally ends up at Nineveh, and when he gets there, he lets loose with the shortest sermon on human record. 40 days more, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That is the whole thing. Eight words in English, five in Hebrew, 40 days more, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And contrary to all expectation, the shortest sermon on human record works. Nineveh listens, despite the fact that Jonah is a reluctant and petulant preacher Nineveh listens and does a swift 180, drops its evil ways and becomes a converted city. This makes God so happy that God chooses to bless, not damn, the great city of 120,000 souls and, as the Bible so quaintly puts it, also many animals. Jonah saves the day and the city. But when Jonah finds out that God is not going to torch the great city of Nineveh like God did with Sodom and Gomorrah, it makes him angry, as the New Revised Standard Version puts it. In Hebrew, literally, it's Jonah burned. Then as now, the instinctive human metaphor for rage and anger is flame and fire and heat and conflagration. Jonah is mad as hell and he's not going to take it anymore. By the way, this is the only time we know about where a preacher is irritated by his own success. This sermon accomplishes exactly what God wants Jonah to do, and it makes him mad. And now, for the first time in the story, we find out why Jonah sailed 2,500 miles west to Tarshish rather than hike 500 miles Northeast to Nineveh as God wanted. We always knew he did this from the beginning, but we haven't known until now. Almost at the end of the story. Why? Listen to what Jonah says. I knew this would happen, God. I predicted this. I said this would happen when I was still in my own country. Because I knew that you were merciful and gracious and abounding in steadfast love. That's the way Jonah puts it. And it makes him mad. I would rather die than live in a world where people like the Ninevites get a second chance. Listen to the way Jonah describes the deity. Gracious, merciful, and abounding in steadfast love. That phrase over the generations had become kind of a terse phrase sea of Israel's understanding of its deity. Gracious, merciful, and abounding in steadfast love. And it just ticks Jonah off. And now look how God responds to Jonah's shabby surliness. God doesn't respond in kind. God doesn't lash out at Jonah's pinch-penny petulance. God just says, Jonah, is it good for you to be angry? Quietly, gently, staying in his chair, so to speak. Is it good for you to be angry? In other words, is it serving your needs? Is it getting you what you want? Doesn't God sound like your therapist? Your therapist doesn't tell you you're acting ridiculous. Your therapist doesn't tell you that you're behaving like a spoiled child. She just asks pointed questions. When you seethe and rage and hurl all kinds of deserved invectives, and disdain on the head of your ex because he abandoned you or cheated on you or ignored you. She doesn't say, oh, please, will you get over yourself? This is so boring. Your ancient rage is tedious. No, she says, is it good to be angry? Is it serving your needs? Are you getting what you... Anybody watch that HBO show, called Shrinking, with Harrison Ford and Jason Segel as therapists and practice together. I am so fascinated by their therapist colleague, Gabby. She is troubled and odd and out of control, but she's also funny and smart and wise and kind and compassionate, and she's my new image for God. I can see her saying, Jonah, is it good for you to be angry? Is this getting you what you want? Some anonymous but gifted author with an eccentric imagination put the story of Jonah together to tell us about the inescapable love of God, to tell us that God loves Assyrians and Jews just the same. This is a minority report in the Hebrew Bible. Almost nobody else said this. This book was probably written about 400 years before Jesus, and in that day, the prevailing Jewish ethos was of this strong, exclusive Jewish identity marked by rigorous, Adherence to the ancient rituals like kosher diet and circumcision and Sabbath observance, and never, never, never intermarrying with Gentiles like that fallen woman Ruth. No mongrels, no mudbloods, as Draco Malfoy would have put it, just pure Jews. And this was a minority report in the Hebrew Bible. Ruth and Jonah stand almost alone in their counterwitness to the majority. They're like the three liberal Supreme Court justices that keep getting voted down by the six conservatives. Minority report. Corporal Anthony Benedetto was 19 years old when he fought his way across France in the Battle of the Bulge. In January of 1945, he stayed on in the devastated country to help with the transition. He was a great singer, so he spent his months entertaining the occupying troops. And on Thanksgiving Day of that year, 1945, Corporal Benedetto met an old friend of his named Frank Smith. Frank and Anthony had spent time singing in a choir together in high school in New York. Frank was black, and as you can guess, Corporal Benedetto is Italian-American on Thanksgiving Day, Frank invited Anthony to worship services at his Baptist church for holiday services. And after church, the two soldiers went to the mess hall for a traditional Thanksgiving dinner for the troops. And when an officer saw them together entering the mess hall, he heaped all these profanities on their heads and came up to Corporal Benedetto with a razor blade and sliced his corporal stripes off his uniform, spit on them, and threw them on the floor, because as you see in the American army in 1945, American soldiers could fraternize with German civilians, or even talk to Nazi soldiers, but black and white soldiers could not be seen together in public. These two soldiers, one black and one white, had spent the last six months liberating skeletal, almost dead Jews from Nazi concentration camps. And now you know why Tony Bennett marched with Harry Belafonte and Martin Luther King Jr. from Montgomery to Selma in 1965. Ruth and Jonah tell us that God's love is more comprehensive and more global than we ever dare to dream or even want. All kinds of people we don't think deserve it get a second chance. God is gracious, merciful, and abounding in steadfast love. And every time this steadfast love zeroes in on the wayward, the wandering, the wicked, the weak, the wan, and the weird. Always. Every once in a while you see a faint reflection of this divine love here on earth. Do you know about the -the hole-in-the-wall gang camp in northeastern Connecticut? Paul Newman established it in 1988 for children with life-threatening illnesses. New Yorker writer Kelvin Trillin says his wife Alice volunteered there every summer, and every summer Alice would kind of gravitate towards the kids at the camp who needed her most. And one summer, that child was Lucy. Lucy had been born with... Genetic diseases, one that prevented her from growing and another that prevented her from digesting her food. She was fed by a tube at night, and she walked only with great difficulty, so Alice, most days, would just ship Lucy around in a golf cart at the camp, a special time for Lucy and Alice. And then one day in the morning, Lucy picked up her mail from the camp post office, and then the kids decided to play duck, duck, goose. All got in a circle and when it was Lucy's turn to be chased around the circle, she dumped her mail that she'd retrieved from the post office in Alice's lap and then made her way around the circle. And as you might guess, took Lucy a long, long time. And while she was making her way around the circle, Alice had a chance to glance down at that pile of mail and she noticed a note from the child's mother on top. And then says Alice, I did a truly awful thing. I just had to know what these parents had done to make this child the most optimistic and enthusiastic and hopeful human being I'd ever met. So I glanced down at the note from her mother and my eyes fell on this sentence. If God had given us all the children in the world to choose from, Lucy, we would have chosen you. And Lucy's still going around the circle, so... Alice turns to Bud, who's sitting next to her, and she says, Bud, quick, look at this. It's the secret of life. Do you get it? Like a mother who loves all of her children without reservation, without condition. God loves us with a reckless, restless ache that nothing, nothing whatsoever shall be lost. So it doesn't matter if you live in Nineveh or in Jerusalem. It doesn't matter if you're whole or broken. If God had given us all the children in the world to choose from, Lucy, we would have chosen you. That is the secret of life.